0: Based on the documented need for additional education in prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, the AUA is launching a series of podcasts, the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. These activities are designed to increase the clinician's competency in the application of new and emerging treatment options, including their mechanisms of actions and associated side effects. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. Amgen, Astellis, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org.
1: Hi, this is Vic Nitty, Chair of the AUA Office of Education welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. This one in our series of the AUA Expert Exchange discussion about managing GU cancer. Today's topic will be the role of immune checkpoint inhibitors in bladder cancer. And I'm very pleased to have as my co-host, Dr. Robert Svatek. Dr. Svatek completed his urology residency training at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas and urologic oncology training at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He is currently the acting chairman of the Department of Urology at the University of Texas Health in San Antonio. Dr. Svatek's clinical practice is devoted primarily to treating patients with bladder cancer. He also runs an NCI-funded laboratory that focuses on understanding immune mechanisms underlying bladder cancer prevention and developing novel immune strategies for treating bladder cancer. Uh, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you for having me. me. Uh, I'm going to go over some learning objectives and then we'll get right, uh, right into it. Our learning objectives for today are to recognize both historic and newer immunotherapy options in the treatment of bladder cancer to describe the mechanism of action of immunotherapy regimens, and finally to identify and manage the adverse events related to these agents. So I'd like to start out, Rob, by asking if you can outline the current landscape uh, of bladder cancer and its treatment and where checkpoint inhibitors currently fit in.
2: Thank you, Dr. Nitti, for the kind introduction. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So I'd like to just start by breaking up the kind of bladder cancer uh, patients into different topics. So we uh, generally like to think of the invasive versus non-muscle invasive categories. Um, In the invasive categories, we have metastatic and non-metastatic patients that present with uh, lung mets. Uh, Generally, at, at this point, the checkpoint inhibitors are approved in patients with metastatic disease. They're not approved in patients without metastatic disease. That said, there are multiple trials currently being um, explored to looking at the effect of these drugs in patients without metastatic disease. And recently, there was um, a good signal that these agents may have promise, particularly in patients that are undergoing cystectomy, as there was evidence of benefit from neoadjuvant chemotherapy or neoadjuvant checkpoint inhibitors. But at the moment, they're currently approved in the metastatic setting. Current areas that are being explored include patients who have failed BCG and patients who are undergoing cystectomy. So we'll see in the future um, if will those agents will be approved in those settings.
1: Now there are several immunotherapies that have a been approved for bladder cancer, but less for for prostate cancer. Why is that? That's
2: a good question. Um, We'll get into a little bit of this uh, a little bit later, but generally, these drugs work very well for cancers that have a lot of mutations. For example, lung and bladder are often associated with carcinogen exposure, and as a result of carcinogens, they have multiple different mutations as opposed to one specific driver mutation that you might see in um, a prostate cancer for example and we'll see in a minute why having multiple mutations may be particularly uh, useful for chemo, uh, for checkpoint inhibitors okay so that that uh, gives us
1: uh, a good basis to start how about uh, just providing us with a background on cancer immunotherapy in general, and and some of the uh, historical aspects of some of the agents that are being used.
2: Right. So I think we have to look back to uh, the last century um, to understand how this kind of got started. There were some really critical observations made. Um, a doctor in Germany named Wil- Wilhelm Busch in 1866 noticed that some of his patients with sarcoma had spontaneous tumor regression after they survived uh, a post-operative wound, erysipelas. So they had an infection, a strep infection, and their tumors regressed. Uh, two years later, he deliberately infected a patient with sarcoma using pus from another active case of wound erysipelas in a deliberate attempt to kind of do the first uh, tumor immunotherapy. Uh, in the 1890s, Dr. William Coley in New York City Um, had similar observations and developed a a toxin he called Coley's toxin um, to actually treat cancer. So early on, there was these uh, kind of critical um, discoveries, but it would be many, many years later before we actually put this into uh, a use as an FDA-approved product. Okay, so
1: some of those early immunotherapies obviously did not last, but what's different about checkpoint inhibitors?
2: Yeah, so the, the um, older paradigm was that we were understanding how uh, the immune system works, that we had T cells that would combat the cancer, that we had cytokines that would help the T cells, that we had dendritic cells that would help prime the T cells. And so the old paradigm was, well, we know all these cells and these uh, cytokines or chemokines are helpful. Um, and so... Let's give more of them. The idea was that we didn't have enough of a good thing. And so a lot of the early studies uh, would do things like giving cytokines, uh, IL-2 interferon. They would um, give the patient's antigens, tumor antigens. They would take T cells or dendritic cells from the patient, um, pulse them uh, with antigens, and then infuse them back into the patient. All of these concepts were under the idea that not enough of a good thing, so let's give them, give them more of it. Um, the result was only modest benefits. Um, and for a long time, tumor immunotherapy kind of uh, came out of favor and, and was, was not looked at as a, 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 prom- a promising approach. Now, the new paradigm is different. It's the realization that tumors actually, deploy mechanisms that thwart the the anti-tumor immune system or the anti-tumor immunity. So it's the understanding now that there are mechanisms by which tumors suppress the normal immune system. And so the new paradigm is that there's too much of a bad thing. For example, there's dysfunctional T-cells that the tumor has maybe secreted things like IL-10 that make the T-cells not functional. There's dysfunctional antigen-presenting cells, there's immune regulation, there's pathologic inflammation, and there's uh, poor trafficking. The the T cells are not able to get into the tumor. So now that we know that the problem is that there's too much of a bad thing, we're now looking at ways to fix that. Um, And and interestingly enough, we're now going back to the old, bringing back in some of the old uh, paradigm things. So combining checkpoint inhibitors with um, cytokines, for example, is is something that we're going to be seeing a lot of in the near future. So how do checkpoint inhibitors work? So checkpoint inhibitors, um, generally, we think of T cells uh, being the most important immune cell that's going to kill tumors. Uh, CD8 positive T cells, for example, are T cells that are geared and um, engineered to be able to kill a tumor, but they have to have checkpoints. They have to have breaks put on them. Otherwise they would be too um, toxic, right? They would result in autoimmunity if we didn't have breaks. And so uh, the the human body, the immune system has evolved with these checkpoints to make certain that these really powerful T cells, these really powerful effector immune cells don't um, destroy uh, normal tissue. Um, and so these checkpoint inhibitors basically um, block those checkpoints. They interfere with the kind of the breaks, would you say, or the checkpoints against these um, effector cells. As an example, PD1 and PDL1 is is the most uh, kind of well understood. Um, and what we, I guess, let's say, think or hypothesize to occur is that tumors express, um, PDL1, and uh, it binds to PD1 on the surface of a T cell. And that binding of that inhibits the activity of the T cell and, and enables the tumor to survive uh, without T cell killing. So, if you block that interaction, you either in, in, infuse an antibody that blocks the PD1 um, a receptor or something to block PDL1, either of those will release that break and allow the T cell to kill the tumor. So
1: that's one idea about how these agents work. Um, are there other proposed explanations?
2: Yeah, and I, th- this is a really um, fascinating thing, is that if, if that model were, were true, then it would, it, it would suggest that, that tumors that don't express pdl one shouldn't respond to these agents. Where, in fact, we know that tumors that, that some tumors that don't have pdl one expression will still respond. Um, and so that calls into question whether this model that we, we think how these agents work is really um, valid. There are other explanations. Um, PD-L1 on the, is expressed on other cells like myeloid cells or dendritic cells. And maybe the activity is mediated through these, I- indirectly through these other cells. There's, there's lots of different kind of fascinating literature coming about, uh, about regarding the activity of PD-1 and PD-L1. For example, tumors may express PD-L1 inside the cell, not expressed on the surface. And so if you're staining for PD-L1, it may be negative, but the tumor may express cytosolic PD-L1. And maybe there's some... Uh, uh, a rationale for why cytosolic PDl1 could drive the responses we're seeing so we're going to have to stay tuned to see exactly how these uh, these agents are working and the reason it's so critical is that we, when we understand that then we'll be able to identify patients that are going to be really good responders versus those that are unlikely to respond
1: And let's revisit a little bit about what we spoke about before about bladder, uh, why bladder cancer uh, is particularly receptive versus other, uh, other tumors uh, to these checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, I know you mentioned um, you know mutations, mutation burden, et cetera. but let's just talk
2: a little bit more about that. right. so um, bladder tumors and lung tumors, for example, have lots of different mutations. Um, we could say that they're tumor mutation burden is high and that means the tumors uh, they've been exposed to carcinogens generally and as a result they have lots of different uh, mutations now these mutations result in expression of proteins that don't normally exist and the body's immune system is really good at identifying proteins that shouldn't be there and if you if you're a cell that harbors a protein that shouldn't be there you're targeted for destruction, just as if you were vir- You're you were a cell that was infected with a virus that express, expressed proteins from a viral origin. So because bladder has lots of different mutations, they result in lots of new antigens, we call neoantigens, and uh, there's lots of opportunity there for these CD8 T-cells to uh, identify those cells and destroy them whereas in prostate or some other tumors, they may have less number of these new antigens. And we see then that tumors that express large number of mutations, we call it say a high total mutation burden, um, or large number of neoantigens tend to be more responsive to these agents, whereas tumors that do not express high numbers of mutations are less responsive. And it's not to say that prostate won't respond. Um, we see responses in, uh, across the whole spectrum of cancers. It's just that, g- generally speaking, tumors with a high mutation burden respond better than those with low mutation burdens.
1: All right. Well, now let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the currently approved checkpoint inhibitors for bladder cancer and... Um, specific indications for uh, each of them.
2: Great. So as we were talking earlier, right now they are approved for metastatic disease. And there are five agents approved for bladder cancer, atezolizumab, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, avelumab, and dar- uh, darvolumumab. Now, these agents are approved for, for either Cisplatin ineligible patients, or for patients that have uh, failed cisplatin. Um, for example, um, so uh, a tezolizumab and pembrolizumab, for example, can be used in first line cisplatin ineligible metastatic patients. Um, the other three can be used for patients that are c- cisplatin eligible but have failed cisplatin. I always emphasize that the standard of care for metastatic disease for cisplatin eligible patients is chemotherapy um, because the response rates for chemotherapy are very robust. Um, but these five agents are currently what we have for metastatic disease. In non-metastatic patients, um, you can use these agents for locally advanced non-metastatic disease, um, particularly in patients that have had cisplatin failure. Um, but uh, right now, for more localized disease, especially for BCG-unresponsive uh, patients who have not metastasized, that's still exploratory.
1: And are these agents also being looked at for non-muscle invasive disease?
2: Yes. Yeah, so um, there's actually even a trial um, ongoing right now for people that are BCG-naive. They've never seen BCG. They've got high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Um We know that those patients generally respond to BCG, but the response rate is not perfect. And we do see um, BCG failures. So the idea there is maybe these checkpoint inhibitors could improve the response to BCG, especially because BCG, we believe, works through a separate mechanism, maybe more of like the older paradigm rather than the newer. And so the combination of these two agents may be better than BCG alone.
1: What are some of the potential complications of checkpoint inhibitors?
2: Yeah, so I think uh, urologists need to be aware of these uh, complications. This is an important topic because we're gonna be seeing these patients in our clinics. Um, And we need to be able to recognize when there's a problem. So I like to talk about the big six uh, for immune-related adverse events, okay? And so those big six are fatigue, Uh, dermatologic or mucosal toxicity, so the mouth or the skin, diarrhea, colitis, hepatotoxicity, pneumonitis, and then endocrinopathies. And I'll go into a little bit of detail on these. So fatigue is probably among the most common side effects. And this is seen in up to 16 24% of patients. So a fair number of patients on these agents will have fatigue. In most cases, it's mild. but when it's present, it's important to exclude other uh, uh, um, uh, immune-related adverse events, including the endocrinopathies. So we have to look at thyroid, pituitary, endocrine problems when a patient presents with fatigue. Um, second, number two, is dermatologic. So this is also one of the most common related, uh, immune-related adverse events. Uh, it can be seen in up to 30 40% of patients. On nivolumab or pembrolizumab for example now most most of the time this skin toxicity is about three and a half weeks after you start treatment Um, what does it look like Um, typically it can be a reticular maculopapular erythematous rash on the trunk or the extremities you can also see vitiligo Uh, Associated with the skin reaction is maybe a mucositis. Um, patients complaining a dry mouth, that can be seen in up to um, 5 7% of patients. Um, when that happens, it's important to make sure they don't have uh, candidiasis because that, that can, they can also have that. Treatment um, for dermatologic and mucosal toxicity is, um, in, in mild cases, um, oral corticosteroids, um, uh, lidocaine rinses for the mouth, Um, In some more advanced cases, we have to uh, temporarily or permanently stop the medication. But many of these, especially in the mild form, can be treated with a topical corticosteroid cream, Um, maybe some antipyretic if if pruritus is a prominent symptom. Uh, But if it's a severe rash, grade three to four, you're going to have to do uh, oral corticosteroids and stop the checkpoint inhibitor. The third one is diarrhea and colitis. Not as common with the PD-L1 and PD-1 drugs as it is with CTLA-4 antibody, um, but, but we can see these. Um, and this could be mild. It could be characterized as diarrhea, but it's, that's distinct from colitis. Colitis is abdominal pain. Maybe you have radiographic or, or endoscopic findings of colonic cl- inflammation. The management of this depends on the severity. It could be just oral hydration, uh, loperamide, Um, In some cases, you have to give high-dose corticosteroids or discontinue the agent. In some cases, we give oral atropine. Number four is hepatotoxicity. Um, We see elevated AST or ALT. This happens a little later than the skin reactions. This can be 8 to 12 weeks after starting treatment. Again, the dermatologic reactions are earlier, three and a half weeks. Um, So these are delayed, um, and this is characteristically... um, Seen as a laboratory evaluation, you have to make certain to exclude other causes of hepatitis, such as a viral or a drug-induced cause. Um, Management of this is dependent on how high the AST or ALT is. Could be as, um, in some cases, we can continue the the checkpoint inhibitor um, with uh, a short course of steroids, uh, but in some cases, we have to stop it altogether. Number five is pneumonitis. Pneumonitis. It's not very common, but it's uh, maybe, let's say, less than 5%, but it's a serious complication. Um, the key things with pneumonitis is they, they develop generally at around three months after starting the, the therapy. Um, they're more common in people on dual therapy, let's say nivolumab and ipilimumab, less common in people on monotherapy. They can present in a vast majority of ways, but dyspnea and cough is the most common. And again, management depends on the severity withholding the checkpoint inhibitor, corticosteroids. In some cases for very uh, advances, advanced pneumonitis, we may give additional immunosuppression such as infliximab with or without cyclophosphamide. The last one is endocrinopathies. So we're talking about inflammation of the pituitary, the thyroid, or the adrenal glands. And these can present very, uh, uh, with very um, kind of vague or generalized complaints. Fatigue, as I mentioned before. Headache, vision changes. Um, So the most common are hypothyroidism or or hyperthyroidism and hypophysitis. These are, you know, all the endocrinopathies together, maybe 10% uh, possibility of this happening with these checkpoint inhibitors. So you wanna uh, check TSH and and your T4 levels. Um, You wanna check the adrenal function. Management of this depends on um, exactly what the endocrinopathy is, um, and will also often you'll need to refer this patient to an endocrinology uh, endocrinologist for evaluation. So, um, I, I think in, in summary, those big six—if you keep those in mind um, th- that will help in terms of your assessment for these.
1: Great. Ron, how do we assess the response to immunotherapy? Is it different than assessing a response to chemotherapy, for example?
2: Yeah, so that's a really a good good uh, question. Um, generally, we have the resist criteria that we use for chemotherapy, and the responses to checkpoint inhibitors is kind of called into question how we're assessing um, uh, the response. And, and, and so, for example... Patients on checkpoint inhibitors um, have some very unusual or unique kind of findings with their metastatic lesions. For example, you might see initially a slight increase in the size of their tumors. That's not very common, but it is, it it can be observed if you image them too soon. Um, Sometimes you see response in one tumor site, but growth in another site. Um, And so you have to kind of look at the whole picture and say, well, Generally, most are responding, although one, uh, one site may not be responding. And you can also see things like stability, where you have enlarged lymph nodes that um, don't seem to be getting smaller, but they're also not shrinking. So we, we um, followed patients with stable metastatic disease for long periods of time, um, whereas with chemotherapy, generally, we don't see uh, these, these typical kind of things.
1: So is, when somebody gets put on a checkpoint inhibitor, uh, is it a, a, a lifelong therapy? Is there ever, uh, if you have someone who's responding, uh, is there a time when you would stop the agent?
2: Yeah, so, good question. The, we, we don't know the right answer here. Uh, most of the trials um, with these five agents uh, that, were, that have been improved, were conducted on patients that had received two years of therapy. Uh, question is, you know, what, what what happens after two years if we stop that drug? And we're, we're not quite certain. So in clinical practice, most of the time, we, we feel uncomfortable stopping those treatments when patients are responding or when they have stable disease. Um, it, it is possible, though, that discontinuation could be done and they have long-term responses, at least in animal models. We've seen this phenomenon where we can treat for a transient period of time, induce a memory response that then protects the individual for a lifetime. But in in humans, we we generally continue the treatment um, until they develop either an adverse event or progression of their disease.
1: So uh, my last question to you is, are there any prognostic or predictive biomarkers
2: for response to checkpoint inhibitors? Right. So, um, yes, they're not perfect. And there's going to be this is exciting um, field of discovery here for these agents. This is a, a great place to, to go into research if you have an interest in, uh, in cancer because this is really exploding. Now, we, we talked earlier about the mutation burden, and you can actually measure that. You can quantify uh, the total mutation burden or TMB. You can quantify the neoantigen load, and it turns out that that's predictive of response to these therapies, but that's an expensive way to do it. Um, another kind of cheaper thing is just to look at the PDL1 status of the tumor. I mentioned earlier that even PDL1 negative tumors can respond. But that said, if you are PDL1 positive, your chances of response to these drugs, to the PD1 and PDL1 inhibitors, is higher. And so we will routinely, routinely check for PDL1 expression. Now there's different antibodies um, and they, de- they have different cut points, but, but PDL1 is certainly a prognostic uh, and, and predictive um uh, biomarker. There's also soluble PDL1 and PD1. So, in some of these patients, they don't have sufficient tumor. Um, lung, lung cancer, for example, there's not often a lot of tumor that you can actually do staining. And so, we're looking at soluble PDL1 and PD1 uh, as a predictor. And, they, and there is some value to that. One other one I want to mention is. Um, uh, MMR, uh, mismatch repair. Mismatch repair is an essential DNA repair mechanism which edits DNA mismatches. And um, patients who had a, a mismatch repair deficiency, um, tumors that were, had MMR deficiency, tend to ha- to respond to these agents because they generally have high number of mutations. So those are the ones that are currently being used, but there's lots of new ones um, that will be, explored in the future
1: Rob I just want to give you uh, a minute to summarize the importance of checkpoint inhibitors uh, in the in the treatment of bladder cancer and uh, how they have changed and are changing uh, our treatment paradigms
2: well I I think it has been a very exciting um, time to be a cancer uh, clinician or investigator um, we if you just look back on the landscape of bladder cancer, we had chemotherapy introduced in the 50s and 60s. And then we had a long period of time where there wasn't much new, new options for these patients. And we understood metastatic bladder cancer to be associated with a very poor survival. Um, and nowadays, we have not one, but several agents available to treat patients and there's there's uh, multiple different ones that we anticipate will be av- available in the near future. So they ha- these agents have completely revolutionized the treatment of bladder cancer specifically, but but generally in, in cancer overall. I just looked at New England Journal Medicine uh, th- this morning, and there's a, a beautiful um, kaplan meyer curve of of uh, response rates to these agents in lung cancer. And it's just amazing um, how uh, uh, effective uh, these agents have been for patients with very advanced disease. So it's a great time to to be taking care of cancer patients, uh, especially in in um, a field of GU where we have a, such response to these these um, therapies. Well, uh, Rob,
1: I want to thank you uh, so much for taking the time to uh, to do this podcast with us. It was really an excellent um, summary of the role of checkpoint inhibitors in the treatment of bladder cancer. Uh, I want to thank the audience um, for listening. And as always, uh, if you need more information, please visit auanet.org university. Thank you all.